Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 8. Letter 18. Honolulu, July, 1866. At sea again. Bound for Hawaii to visit the great volcano and behold the other notable things which distinguish this island above the remainder of the group, we sailed from Honolulu on a certain Saturday afternoon in the good schooner Boomerang. The Boomerang was about as long as two streetcars and about as wide as one. She was so small, though she was larger than the majority of the inner island coasters, that when I stood on her deck I felt but a little smaller than the Colossus of Rhodes must have felt when he had a man of war under him. I could reach the water when she lay over under a strong breeze. When the captain and Brown and myself and four other gentlemen and the wheelsmen were all assembled on the little after portion of the deck, which is sacred to the captain passengers, it is full. There was not room for any more quality folk. Another section of the deck, twice as large as ours, was full of natives of both sexes, with their customary dogs, mats, blankets, pipes, calabashes of poi, fleas, and other luxuries and baggage of minor importance. As soon as we set sail, the natives all lay down on the deck and smoked and conversed and captured vermin and ate them and spit on each other and were truly sociable. The little low-ceilinged cabin below was rather larger than our hearse and as dark as a vault. It had two coffins on each side, I mean bunks, though Mr. Brown, with that spirit of irreverence which is so sad a feature of his nature, preferred to call the bunk he was allotted his shelf. A small table, capable of accommodating three persons at dinner, stood against the forward bulkhead, and over it hung the dingiest whale-oil lantern that ever peopled the obscurity of a dungeon with grim and ghostly shapes. The floor room, unoccupied, was not extensive. One might swing a cat in it, perhaps, but then it would be fatal to the cat to do so. The hold forward of the bulkhead had but little freight in it, and from morning till night a villainous old rooster, with a voice like Balaam's ass and the same disposition to use it, strutted up and down in that part of the vessel and crowed. He usually took dinner at six o'clock, and then, after an hour devoted to meditation, he mounted a barrel and crowed a good portion of the night. He got hoarser and hoarser all the time, but he scorned to allow any personal consideration to interfere with his duty, and kept up his labors in defiance of a threatened diphtheria. Sleeping was out of the question when he was on watch. He was a source of genuine aggravation and annoyance to me. It was worse than useless to shout at him or apply offensive epithets to him. He only took these for applause and strained himself to make more noise. Occasionally during the day I threw potatoes at him through an aperture in the bulkhead, but he simply dodged them and went on crowing. The first night as I lay in my coffin, idly watching the dim lamp swinging to the rolling of the ship, and snuffing the nauseous odors of bilge water, I felt something gallop over me. Lazarus did not come out of his sepulchre with more cheerful alacrity than I did out of mine. However, I turned in again when I found it was only a rat. Presently, something galloped over me once more. I knew it was not the rat this time, and I thought it might be a centipede, because the captain had killed one on the deck in the afternoon. I turned out of the bed. The first glance at the pillow showed me a repulsive sentinel perched upon each end of it. Cockroaches as big as peach leaves, 
fellows with long, quivering antennas and fiery, malignant eyes. They were grating their teeth like tobacco worms and appeared to be dissatisfied about something. I had often heard that these reptiles were in the habit of eating off sleeping sailors' toenails down to the quick, and I would not get in the bunk any more. I lay down on the floor, but a rat came and bothered me there, and shortly afterwards a procession of cockroaches arrived and camped in my hair. In a few moments the rooster was crowing with uncommon spirit, and a party of fleas were throwing double somersaults about my person in the wildest disorder, and taking a bite every time they struck. I was beginning to feel really annoyed. I got up and put my clothes on and went up on the deck. The above is not an attempt to be spicy. It is simply an attempt to give a truthful sketch of inner island schooner life. There is no such thing as keeping a vessel in elegant condition, I think, when she carries molasses and kanakas. Roll on Silver Moon It was compensation for all my sufferings to come unexpectedly upon so beautiful a scene as met my eye. To step suddenly out of the sepulchral gloom of the cabin and stand under the strong light of the moon and the center, as it were, of a glittering sea of liquid silver to see the broad sails straining in the gale, the ship keeled over on her side and the angry foam hissing past her lee bulwarks and sparkling sheets of spray dashing high over her bows and raining upon her decks. To brace myself and hang fast to the first object that presented itself, with hat jammed down and coattails whipping in the breeze, and feel that exhilaration that thrills in one's hair and quivers down his backbone when he knows that every inch of canvas is drawing and the vessel cleaving through the billows at her utmost speed. There was no darkness, no dimness, no obscurity there. All was brightness. Every object was vividly defined. Every prostrate kanaka, every coil of rope, every calabash of poi, every puppy, every seam of the flooring, every bolt head, every object, however minute, showed sharp and distinct in its every outline, and the shadow of the broad mainsail lay black as a pall upon the deck, leaving Brown's white upturned face glorified and his body in a total eclipse. I endeavor to entertain the seasick man. I turned to look down upon the sparkly animaculae of the South Seas and watch the train of jeweled fire they made in the wake of the vessel. I, oh me, what's the matter, Brown? Oh me, you said that before, Brown, and that is a tautology. Tautology be hanged. This is no time to talk to a man about tautology when he is sick. Oh, so sick, oh my, and has vomited up his heart and, oh my. Hand me that soup dish, and don't stand there hanging in that bulkhead looking like a fool. I handed him the absurd tin shaving pot called a birth pan, which they hang by a hook at the edge of a berth for use of distressed landsmen with unsettled stomachs. But all the sufferer's efforts were fruitless. His tortured stomach refused to yield up its cargo. I do not often pity this bitter enemy to sentiment. He would not thank me for it anyway. But now I did pity him, and I pitied him from the bottom of my heart. Any man with any feeling must have been touched to see him in such misery. I did not try to help him. Indeed, I did not even think of so unpromising a thing. But I sat down by him to talk to him, and so caused the tedious hours to pass less wearily if possible. I talked to him for some time, but strangely enough, 
pathetic narratives did not move his emotions. Eloquent declamation did not inspire him, and the most humorous anecdotes failed to make him even smile. He seemed as distressed and restless at intervals, albeit the rule of his present case was to seem to look like an allegory of unconditional surrender, hopeless, helpless, and indifferent. He seemed as distressed and restless as if my conversation and my anecdotes were irksome to him. It was because of this that at last I dropped into poetry. I said I had been writing a poem, or rather been paraphrasing a passage in Shakespeare, a passage full of wisdom, which I thought I might remember easier if I reduced it to rhyme, and hoped it would be pleasant to him. Said I had taken but few liberties with the original, had preserved its brevity and terseness, its language as nearly as possible, and its ideas in their regular sequence, and proceeded to read it to him as follows. Polonius's advice to his son, paraphrased from Hamlet. Beware of the spoken word, be wise, bury thy thoughts in thy breast, nor let thoughts that are unnatural be ever in acts expressed. Be thou courteous and kindly toward all, and be familiar and vulgar with none, but the friends thou hast proved in thy need, hold thou fast till life's mission is done. Shake not thy faith by confiding in every new-begot friend. Beware thou of quarrels, but in them fight them out to the bitter end. Give thine ear unto all that would seek it, but a few thy voice impart. Receive and consider all censure, but thy judgment seal in thy heart. Let thy habit be ever as costly as thy purse is able to span. Never gaudy, but rich, for the raiment full often proclaimeth the man. Neither borrow nor lend, oft alone, both loseth itself and a friend, and to borrow relaxeth the thrift, whereby husbandry gaineth its end. But lo, above all set this law, unto thyself be thou true, then never toward any canst thou the deed of a false heart do. As I finished, Brown's stomach cast up its contents, and in a minute or two, he felt entirely relieved and comfortable. He then said that the anecdotes and eloquence were no good, but if he got seasick again, he would like to hear more poetry. The Zones of the Earth Concentrated Monday morning, we were close to the island of Hawaii. Two of its highest mountains were in view, Mauna Loa and Hualalai. The latter is an imposing peak, but being only 10,000 feet is seldom mentioned or heard of. Mauna Loa is 14,000 feet high. The rays of glittering snow and ice that clasped its summit like a claw looked refreshing when viewed from the blistering climate we were in. One could stand on that mountain, wrapped up in blankets and furs to keep warm, and while he nibbled a snowball or an icicle to quench his thirst, he could look down the long sweeps of its sides and see spots where plants are growing that grow only where the bitter cold of winter prevails. Lower down, he could see sections devoted to productions that thrive in the temperate zone alone. And at the bottom of the mountain, he could see the home of the tufted cocoa palms and other species of vegetation that grow only in the sultry atmosphere of eternal summers. He could see all the climes of the world at a single glance of the eye, and that glance would only pass over a distance of eight or ten miles as the bird flies. The Refuge for the Weary We landed at Kailua, a little collection of native grass houses reposing under tall coconut trees. 
the sleepiest, quietest Sunday rest-looking place you can imagine. Ye weary ones that are sick of the laboring care and the bewildering turmoil of the great world, and sigh for a land where ye may fold your tired hands and slumber your lives peacefully away, pack up your carpet sacks and go to Kailua. A week there ought to cure the saddest of you all. An old ruin of lava block walls down by the sea was pointed out as a fort built by John Adams for Kamehameha I and mounted with heavy guns, some of them 32-pounders, by some sagacious Englishman. I was told that the fort was dismantled a few years ago and the guns sold in San Francisco for old iron, which was very improbable. I was told that an adjacent ruin was old Kamehameha's sleeping house, Another his eating house, another his God's house, another his wife's house. For by the ancient taboo system, it was death for man and woman to eat together. Every married man's premises comprised five or six houses. This was the law of the land. It was this custom, no doubt, which has left every pleasant valley in these islands marked with the ruins of numerous house enclosures, and given strangers the impression that the population must have been vast before those houses were deserted. But the argument loses much of its force when you come to consider that the houses, absolutely necessary for half a dozen married men, were sufficient in themselves to form one of the desired villages so frequently pointed out to the Californian. To natives, by the way, all whites are howlies, that is, strangers or more properly foreigners, and to the white residents, all the white newcomers are Californians. The term is used more for convenience than anything else. I was told also that Kailua was old Kamehameha's favorite place of residence and that it was always a favorite place of resort with his successors. Very well, if Kailua suits these kings all right, every man to his taste, but as Brown observed in this connection, you'll excuse me. Stewed Chicken and Miraculous Bread I was told a good many other things concerning Kailua, not one of which interested me in the least. I was weary and worn with the plunging of the boomerang and the always stormy passages between the islands. I was tired of hanging on by teeth and toenails, and above all, I was tired of stewed chicken. All I wanted was an hour's rest on a foundation that would let me stand up straight without running any risk. I wanted something to eat that was not stewed chicken. I didn't care what. I took no notes and had no inclination to take any. Now the foregoing is nothing but the feverish irritability of a short, rough sea voyage coming to the surface. A voyage so short that it affords no time for you to tone down and grow quiet and reconciled and get your stomach in order, and the bad taste out of your mouth and the unhealthy coating off your tongue. I snarled at the old rooster and the cockroaches and the national stewed chicken all the time, not because these troubles could be removed, but only because it was a sanitary necessity to snarl at something or perish. One saltwater spleen must be growled out of the system. There is no other relief. I pined, I longed, I yearned to growl at the captain himself, but there was no opening. The man had had such passengers before, I suppose, and knew how to handle them, and so he was polite and painstaking and accommodating, and most exasperatingly patient and even-tempered. So I said to myself, I will take it out on your old schooner, anyhow. I will blackguard the boomerang and the public prints to pay for your shameless good nature when your passengers are peevish and actually need somebody to growl at for relief. But now that I am restored by the land breeze, I wonder at my ingratitude, for no man ever treated me better than Captain Kangaroo did on board his ship, 
As for the stewed chicken, that last and meanest substitute for something to eat, that soothing rubbish for toothless infants, that diet for cholera patients and the rice water stage, it was, of course, about the best food we could have at sea, and so I only abused it because I hated it as I do sardines or tomatoes, and because it was stewed chicken, and because it was such a relief to abuse somebody for something. But kangaroo, I never abused Captain Kangaroo. I hope I have a better heart than to abuse a man who, with the kindest and most generous and unselfish motive in the world, went to the galley and with his own hands baked for me the worst piece of bread I have ever eaten in my life. His motive was good, his desire to help me was sincere, but his execution was damnable. You see, I was not sick, but nothing would taste good to me. The Kanaka cook's bread was particularly unpalatable. He was a new hand, the regular cook being sick and helpless now, and Captain Kangaroo, in the genuine goodness of his heart, felt for me in my distress and went down and made the most infernal bread. I ate one of his rolls. I would have eaten it if it had killed me, and I said to myself, It is on my stomach. Tis well. If it were there on my conscience, life would be a burden to me. I carried one up to Brown, and he ate a piece, but declined to experiment further. I insisted, but he said no, he didn't want any more ballast. When the good deeds of men are judged in the great day that is to bring bliss or eternal woe unto us all, the charity that was in Captain Kangaroo's heart will be remembered and rewarded, albeit his bread will have been forgotten for ages. The Famous Orange and Coffee Region It was only about 15 miles from Kailua to Kealakua Bay, either by sea or land, but the former route there was a point to be weathered where the ship would be the sport of contrary winds for hours, and she would probably occupy the entire day in making the trip, whereas we could do it on horseback in a little while and have the cheering benefit of a respite from the discomforts we had been experiencing on the vessel. We hired horses from the Kanakas, and miserable affairs they were too. They had lived on meditation all their lives, no doubt, for Kailua is fruitful and nothing else. I will mention in this place that horses are plenty everywhere in the Sandwich Islands. No Kanaka is without one or more. But when you travel from one island to another, it's necessary to take your own saddle and bridle, for these articles are scarce. It is singular baggage for a sea voyage, but it will not do to go without it. The ride through the district of Kona to Kealakakua Bay took us through the famous coffee and orange section. I think the Kona coffee has a richer flavor than any other I've ever tasted, be it grown where it may and call it by what name you please. At one time it was cultivated quite extensively and promised to become one of the great staples of the Hawaiian commerce, but the heaviest crop ever raised was almost entirely destroyed by a blight and this, together with heavy American customs duties, had the effect of suddenly checking enterprise in this direction. For several years the coffee growers fought the blight with all manner of cures and preventatives, but with small success. And at length, some of the less persevering abandoned coffee growing altogether and turned their attention to more encouraging pursuits. The coffee interest has not recovered its former importance, but it is improving slowly. The exportation of this article last year was over 268,000 pounds, and it's expected that the present year's yield will be much greater still. Contrast the progress of the coffee interest with that of sugar, and the demoralizing effects of the blight upon the former will be readily seen. Exportations Coffee in pounds In 1852, 117,000 pounds were exported. 
1865, 263,000 pounds were exported. Sugar in pounds. In 1852, 730,000. In 1865, 15,318,097. Thus, the sugar yield of last year was more than 20 times that than it was in 1852, while the coffee yield scarcely more than doubled. The coffee plantations we encountered in our short journey looked well, and we were told that the crop was unusually promising. There are no finer oranges in the world than those produced in the district of Kona. When new and fresh, they're delicious. The principal market for them was California, but of course they lose much of their excellence by so long a voyage. About 500,000 oranges were exported last year against 15,000 in 1852. The orange culture is safe and sure and is being more and more extensively engaged in every year. We passed one orchard that contained 10,000 orange trees. There are many species of beautiful trees in Kona, noble forests of them, and we had numberless opportunities of contrasting the orange with them. The verdict rested with the orange. Among the varied and handsome foliage of the cow, koa, kukui, breadfruit, mango, guava, peach, Citron, ohia, and other fine trees, its dark, rich green cone was sure to arrest the eye and compel constant exclamations of admiration. So dark a green is its foliage that at a distance of a quarter of a mile, the orange tree looks almost black. Woodland Scenery The ride from Kailua to Kealakakua Bay is worth taking. It passes along on high ground, say a thousand feet above sea level, and usually about a mile distant from the ocean, which is always in sight, save that occasionally that you find yourself buried in the forest in the midst of a rank tropical vegetation and dense growth of trees, whose great boughs overarch the road and shut out the sun and sea and everything and leave you in a dim, shady tunnel haunted with invisible singing birds and fragrant with the odor of flowers. It was pleasant to ride occasionally in the warm sun and feast the eye upon the ever-changing panorama of the forest, beyond and below us, with its many tints, its softened lights and shadows, its billowing undulations sweeping gently down from the mountain to the sea. It was pleasant also at intervals to leave the sultry sun and pass into the cool green depths of this forest and indulge in sentimental reflections under the inspiration of its brooding twilight and its whispering foliage. The jaunt through Kona will always be a happy memory for me. Mark Twain Letter 19, Kona, July, 1866 Concerning Matters and Things At one farmhouse we got some large peaches of excellent flavor while on our horseback ride through Kona. This fruit as a general thing does not do well on the Sandwich Islands. It takes a sort of almond shape and is small and bitter. It needs frost, they say, and perhaps it does. If this be so, it will have a good opportunity to go on needing it, as it will not likely get it. The trees from which the fine fruit I have spoken of had been planted and replanted over and over again, and to this treatment the proprietor of the orchard attributed his success. We passed several sugar plantations, new ones and not very extensive. The crops were in most cases third ratoons. Note. The first crop is called plant cane. Subsequent crops, which spring from the original roots without replanting, are called ratoons. 
Almost everywhere on the island of Hawaii, sugarcane matures in 12 months, both ratoons and plant. And although it ought to be taken off as soon as it tassels, no doubt, it is not absolutely necessary to do it until about four months afterwards. In Kona, the average yield of an acre of ground is two tons of sugar, they say. This is only a moderate yield for these islands, but would be extraordinary for Louisiana and most other sugar-growing countries. The plantations in Kona, being on pretty high ground, up among the light and frequent rains, no irrigation whatever is required. In central Kona, there is but little idle cane land now, but there is a good deal in north and south Kona. There are thousands of acres of cane land unoccupied on the island of Hawaii, and the prices asked for it range from $1 to $150 an acre. It's owned by common natives and is lying out of doors. They make no use of it whatever, and yet here, lately, they seem disinclined to either lease it or sell it. I was frequently told this. In this connection, it may not be out of place to insert an extract from a book of Hawaiian travels recently published by a visiting minister of the gospel. Well, now I wouldn't if I was you. Brown, I wish you wouldn't look over my shoulder when I'm writing. I wish you would indulge yourself in some little respite from my affairs and interest yourself in your own business sometimes. Well, I don't care. I'm disgusted with these mush-and-milk preacher travels, and I wouldn't make an extract from one of them. Father Damon has got stacks of books shoemakered up by them pious bushwhackers from America. They're the flattest reading. They are sicker than the smart things children say in the newspapers. Every preacher that gets lazy comes to the Sandwich Islands to recruit his health and then goes back home and writes a book. And he puts in a lot of history and legends and manners and customs and dead loads of praise of the missionaries for civilizing and Christianizing the natives and says in considerable chapters how grateful the savage ought to be. And when there's a chapter to be filled out and they haven't got anything to fill it out with, they shovel in lots of scripture. Now don't they? You just look at Reverend Cheever's book and Anderson's, and when they come to the volcano or any sort of heavy scenery, and it is too much bother to describe it, they shovel in another lot of scripture and wind up with, Lo, what God hath wrought! Confound their lazy melts. Now, I wouldn't make extracts out of no such bosh. Mr. Brown, I brought you with me on this voyage merely because a newspaper correspondent should travel in some degree of state, and so command the respect of strangers. I did not expect you to assist me in my literary labors with your crude ideas. You may desist from further straining your intellect for the present, Mr. Brown, and proceed to the nearest depot and replenish the correspondent fountain of inspiration. Fountain dry now, of course. Confound me if I ever chance an opinion, but I gotta trot down to the soda factory and fill up that cursed jug again. Seems to me that you need more inspiration and... Good afternoon, Mr. Brown. The extract I was speaking of reads as follows. We were in North Kona, the arable uplands in both the Konas are owned chiefly by foreigners. Indeed, the best of the lands on all the islands appear to be fast going into foreign hands, and one of the allegations made to me by a foreign resident against the missionaries was that their influence was against us to transfer. The Reverend Mister told me, however, that to prevent the lands immediately about him, once owned by the admirable Copiolani, from going to strangers, he knew not who, he had felt obliged to invest his own private funds in them. We naturally swell with admiration when we contemplate a sacrifice like that, but 
While I read the generous last words of that extract, it fills me with inexpressible satisfaction to know that the Reverend Mister had his reward. He paid $1,500 for one of those pieces of land. He did not have to keep it long. Without sticking a spade into it, he sold it to a foreigner for $10,000 in gold. Yet there be amongst us those who fear to trust the precious promise, Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall return unto thee after many days. I have since been told that the original $1,500 belonged to a ward of the missionary, and that inasmuch as the latter was investing it with the main view to doing his charge the best service in his power, and doubtless would not have felt at liberty to so invest it merely to protect the poor natives, his glorification in the book was not particularly gratifying to him. The other missionaries smiled at the idea of their tribe investing their own private funds in this free and easy, this gay and affluent way, buying $1,500 worth of land at a dash, salary about $400 a year, and merely to do a trifling favor to some savage neighbor? Nature's Printed Record in the Lava At four o'clock in the afternoon, we were winding down a mountain of dreary and desolate lava to the sea and closing our pleasant land journey. This lava is the accumulation of ages. One torrent of fire after another rolled down here in old times and built up the island structure higher and higher. Underneath it is honeycombed with caves. It would be of no use to dig wells in such a place. They wouldn't hold water. You would not find any for them to hold anyway, for that matter. Consequently, the planters depend upon cisterns. The last lava flow occurred here so long ago that there are none now living who witnessed it. In one place, it enclosed and burned down a grove of coconut trees, and the holes in the lava where the trunk stood are still visible. Their sides retain the impression of the bark. The trees fell upon the burning river and becoming partly submerged and left in it the perfect counterfeit of every knot and branch and leaf and even nut for curiosity seekers of a long distant day to gaze upon and wonder at. There were doubtless plenty of Kanaka sentinels on guard hereabouts at that time, but they did not leave casts of their figures in the lava as the Roman sentinels at Herculaneum and Pompeii did. It's a pity it is so, because such things are so interesting, but it is so. They probably went away. They probably went early, perhaps. It was very bad. However, they had their merits. The Romans exhibited the higher pluck, but the Kanakas showed the sounder judgment. As usual, Brown loaded his unhappy horse with 15 or 20 pounds of specimens to be cursed and worried over for a time, and then discarded for new toys of a similar nature later. He's like most people who visit these islands. They are always collecting specimens with a wild enthusiasm, but they never get home with any of them. Captain Cook's Death Place Shortly we came into sight of that spot whose history is so familiar to every schoolboy in the wide world, Kealakakua Bay, the place where Captain Cook, the great circumnavigator, was killed by the natives nearly a hundred years ago. The setting sun was flaming upon it, a summer shower was falling, and it was spanned by two magnificent rainbows. Two gentlemen who were in advance of us rode through one of these, and for a moment their garments shone with more than a regal splendor. Why did not Captain Cook have the taste enough to call his great discovery the Rainbow Islands? These charming spectacles are present to you at every turn. They are also as common in all the islands as fog and wind is in San Francisco. They are visible every day and frequently at night also. Not the silvery bow we see once in the age in the States by moonlight, but 
barred in all bright and beautiful colors, like the children of the sun and rain. I saw one of them a few nights ago, what the sailors call rain dogs. Little patches of rainbow are often seen drifting about the heavens in these latitudes, like stained cathedral ceilings. Kealakakua Bay is a little curve like the last kink of a snail shell, winding deep into the island. Seemingly not more than a mile wide from shore to shore, it's bounded on one side, where the murder was done, by a little flat plain on which stands a coconut grove and some ruined houses. A steep wall of lava, thousand feet high at the upper end and three or four hundred at the lower, comes down from the mountain and bounds the inner extremity of it. From this wall, the place takes its name, Kealakakua, which in the native tongue signifies the pathway of the gods. They say, and still believe in spite of their liberal education in Christianity, that the great god Lono used to live up on that hillside and always travel that causeway when urgent business connected with heavenly affairs called him down to the seashore in a hurry. As the red sun looked across the placid ocean through the tall, clear stems of the coconut trees, like a blooming whiskey bloat through the bars of a city prison, I went and stood in the edge of the water on the flat rock pressed by Captain Cook's feet when the blow was dealt that took away his life and tried to picture in my mind the doomed man struggling in the midst of the multitude of exasperated natives, the men in the ship crowding to the vessel's side and gazing in anxious dismay toward the shore. Well, I discovered I could not do it. It was growing dark, and the rain began to fall. We could see that the distant boomerang was helplessly becalmed at sea, and so I adjourned to the cheerless little box of a warehouse and sat down to smoke and think, and wish the ship would make land for we had not eaten much for the last ten hours and were viciously hungry. The Story of Captain Cook Plain, unvarnished history takes the romance out of Captain Cook's assassination and renders a deliberate verdict of justifiable homicide. Wherever he went among the islands, he was cordially received and welcomed by the inhabitants, and his ships lavishly supplied with all manner of food. He returned these kindnesses with insult and ill-treatment. When he landed at Kealakakua Bay, a multitude of natives, variously estimated at ten to 15,000, flocked about him and conducted him to the principal temple with more than royal honors, with honors suited to their chiefest god, for such they took him to be. They called him Lono, a deity who resided at that place in a former age, but who had gone away and had ever since been anxiously expected back by the people. When Cook approached the awe-stricken people, they prostrated themselves and hid their faces. His coming was announced in a loud voice by heralds, and those who had not time to get out of the way after prostrating themselves were trampled underfoot by the following throngs. Arrived at the temple, he was taken into the most sacred part and placed before the principal idol, immediately under an altar of wood on which a putrid hog was deposited. This was held toward him while the priests repeated a long and rapidly enunciated address, after which he was led to the top of a partially decayed scaffolding. Ten men bearing a large hog and bundles of red cloth then entered the temple and prostrated themselves before him. The cloth was taken from them by the priest, who encircled Cook with it in numerous folds, and afterward offered the hog to him in sacrifice. Two priests, alternately in unison, chanted praises in honor of Lono, after which they led him to the chief idol, which following their example he kissed. He was anointed by the high priest, that is to say, his arms and hands and face were slimed over with the chewed meat of a coconut, 
After this nasty compliment, he was regaled with awa manufactured in the mouths of attendants and spit out into a drinking vessel. As the last most delicate attention, he was fed with swine meat which had been masticated for him by a filthy old man. That last is from Jarvis, page 114. These distinguished civilities were never offered by the islanders to mere humans. Cook was mistaken for their absent god. He accepted the situation and helped the natives to deceive themselves. His conduct might have been wrong in a moral point of view, but his policy was good in conniving at the deception and proved itself so. The belief that he was a god saved him a good while from being killed, protected him thoroughly and completely, until, in an unlucky moment, it was discovered he was only a man. His death followed instantly. Jarvis, from whose history principally I am condensing this narrative, thinks his destruction was a direct consequence of his dishonest personification of the god, but unhappily for the argument, the historian proves over and over again that the false Lono was spared time and again when simple Captain Cook of the Royal Navy would have been destroyed with small ceremony. The idolatrous worship of Captain Cook, as above described, was repeated at every heathen temple he visited. Everywhere he went, the terrified common people, not being accustomed to seeing gods marching around of their own free will and accord and without human assistance, fled at his approach or fell down and worshipped him. A priest attended him and regulated the religious ceremonies which constantly took place in his honor. Offerings, chants, and addresses met him at every point. During all this time, the whole island was heavily taxed to supply the wants of the ships or contribute to the gratification of their officers and crews. And, as was customary in such cases, no return expected. The natives rendered much assistance in fitting the ships and preparing them for their voyages. At one time, the king of the island laid a taboo upon his people, confining them to their houses for several days. This interrupted the daily supply of vegetables to the ships. Several natives tried to violate the taboo under threats made by Cook's sailors, but were prevented by a chief who, for thus enforcing the laws of his country, had a musket fired over his head from one of the ships. This is related in Cook's voyages. The taboo was soon removed, and the Englishmen, were favored with the boundless hospitality of the natives as before, except that the Kanaka women were interdicted from visiting the ships. Formerly, with extravagant hospitality, the people had sent their wives and daughters on board themselves. The officers and sailors went freely about the island and were everywhere laden with presents. The king visited Cook in royal state and gave him a large number of exceedingly costly and valuable presents, in return for which the resurrected Lono presented his majesty with a white linen shirt and a dagger, an instance of illiberality in every way discreditable to a god. On the 2nd of December, at the desire of his commander, Captain King proposed to the priest to purchase for fuel the railing which surrounded the top of the temple of Lono. In this, Cook manifested as little respect for the religion and the mythology of which he figured so conspicuously as scruples in violating the divine precepts of his own, Indeed, throughout his voyages, a spirit, regardless of the rights and feelings of others, when his own were interested, is manifested, especially in this last cruise, which is a blot upon his memory. Cook desecrated the holy places of the temple by storing supplies for his ships in them, and by using the level grounds within the enclosure as a general workshop for repairing his sails, etc., ground which was so sacred that no common native dared to set foot upon it. Indeed, Ledyard, 
a Yankee sailor who was with Cook and whose journal is considered the most just and reliable account of this eventful period of the voyage, says two iron hatchets were offered for the temple railing, and when the sacrilegious proposition was refused by the priests with horror and indignation, it was torn down by order of Captain Cook and taken to the boats by the sailors, and the images which surmounted it removed and destroyed in the presence of the priests and chiefs. Abused and insulted, natives finally grew desperate under the indignities that were constantly being heaped upon them by men whose wants they had unselfishly relieved at the expense of their own impoverishment, and angered by some fresh baseness, they stoned a party of sailors and drove them to their boats. From this time on, Cook and the natives were alternately friendly and hostile until Sunday the 14th, whose setting sun saw the circumnavigator a corpse. Ledyard's account and that of the natives vary in no important particulars. A Kanaka, in revenge for a blow he had received at the hands of a sailor, the natives say he was flogged, stole a boat from one of the ships and broke it up to get the nails out of it. Cook determined to seize the king and remove him to his ship and keep him a prisoner until the boat was restored. By deception and smoothly worded persuasion, he got the Asian monarch to the shore, but when they were about to enter the boat, a multitude of natives flocked to the place, and one raised a cry that their king was going to be taken away and killed. Great excitement ensued, and Cook's situation became perilous in the extreme. He had only a handful of marines and sailors with him, and the crowd of natives grew constantly larger and more clamorous every moment. Cook opened the hostilities himself. Hearing a native make threats, he had him pointed out and fired on him with a blank cartridge. The man, finding himself unhurt, repeated his threats, and Cook fired at him again and wounded him mortally. A speedy retreat of the English party to the boats was now absolutely necessary. As soon as it was begun, Cook was hit with a stone and discovering who threw it, he shot the man dead. The officer in the boats observed the retreat and ordered the boats to fire. This occasioned Cook's guard to face about and fire also, and then the attack became general. Cook and Lieutenant Phillips were together a few paces in the rear of the guard, and perceiving a general fire without orders, quitted the king and ran to the shore to stop it. But not being able to make themselves heard and being close-pressed upon by the chiefs, they joined the guard, who fired as they retreated. Cook, having at length reached the margin of the water between the fire and the boats, waved with his hat for them to cease firing and come on in. While he was doing this, a chief stabbed him from behind with an iron dagger, procured in traffic with the sailors, just under the shoulder blade, and it passed quite through his body. Cook fell with his face in the water and immediately expired. The native account says that after Cook had shot two men, he struck a stalwart chief with the flat of his sword for some reason or another, and the chief seized and pinioned Cook's arms in his powerful grip and bent him backwards over his knee, not meaning to hurt him, for it was not deemed possible to hurt the god Lono, but to keep him from doing further mischief. And this treatment giving him pain, he betrayed his mortal nature with a groan, and that was his death warrant. The fraud which had served him so well was discovered at last, and the natives shouted, he groans, he's not a god, and instantly they fell upon him and killed him. His flesh was stripped from the bones and burned, except nine pounds of it which was sent to the ships. The heart was hung up in a native hut where it was found and eaten by three children who mistook it for the heart of a dog. One of these children grew up to be a very old man and died here in Honolulu just a few years ago, 
A portion of Cook's bones were recovered and consigned to the deep by the officers of the ship. Small blame should attach to the natives for the killing of Cook. They treated him well. In return, he abused them. He and his men inflicted bodily injury upon many of them at different times and killed at least three of them before they offered any proportionate retaliation. Mark Twain. <laughs>